This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Kirsten Valdez Quaid, author of the short story collection Night at the Fiestas. She has received a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 award, and her work has appeared in The New Yorker and The Best American Short Stories. Valdez Quaid's family has lived in northern New Mexico for hundreds of years, and she was always interested in her grandparents' and great-grandparents' stories of living there. As a child, she moved away and said she longed for New Mexico when she was gone. As a consequence, she says being both of the place and not of the place fuels her fiction. We began our discussion talking about whether Santa Fe was almost a mythical place for her. Absolutely, and I think especially the the Santa Fe and northern New Mexico of, you know, the mid to early 20th century, certainly. And because I was constantly asking my grandparents for for their stories, um, you know, what was it like to grow up in Torreon and, you know, what did you do and what was school like? I was constantly pestering them. And we spent a lot of time in Santa Fe, and continu- I continued to. So, you know, there was the, the Santa Fe that I experienced, the contemporary Santa Fe of traffic and <laughs> high housing prices and all of that, along with this, this other Santa Fe constructed of history and my grandparents' stories and, you know, my imagination, because I was constantly having to fill in the gaps in their stories. So when I when I drive around Santa Fe now, I I'm constantly thinking about my grandparents' stories. My grandfather is a stonemason, and he's done a ton of work around Santa Fe. And when I'm with him, he'll point out, you know, that he did the coping on top of the public library, and he built that wall or that that patio. So I'm constantly imagining him as a younger man working in the city that I am now experiencing. My grandmother went to Loretto Academy, which is, you know, now it's a museum, the Loretto Chapel, famous for having this staircase, this miraculous staircase that was possibly built by St. Joseph. Um, And, you know, my grandmother would sing in the choir loft and went up and down that staircase every day when she was a teenager. Yeah, the past and the present have always felt really, really close to me. And I've always been so interested in the gaps, the, the pieces of their stories that aren't quite explained or, or that they, you know, these details that they don't remember. So you can trace at least one ancestor back to 1695 in northern New Mexico. And when we think about New Mexico, Politically, it was part of the Spanish Empire, then part of Mexico before becoming a U.S. territory and then a state. And it also has one of the largest Native American populations in the United States. So it's a really mixed bag in terms of its history and ethnicities and race. Since your family has been there for hundreds of years, there's probably been intermarriage. And I'm wondering what your experience of identity is. That question of identity really is thorny, and it's one that has has confused me. I remember being at a family wedding when I was a kid, and my sister said something about us being Mexican, and an older relative said, we're not Mexican. And we were both sort of confused. I don't think we exactly knew what we were. You know, 
some people would say, oh, you're, we're Spanish. But that clearly wasn't the case. You know, nobody had been Spanish for hundreds of years. So it, it is confusing. Um, and I think for me, the best way of understanding my identity has always been through story, through the stories my grandparents have told and the stories that I, I sort of piece together imaginatively through history. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the labels have always sort of confused me because it doesn't feel clear cut. And yeah. history is always much more complicated than a checklist. It seems like we need some new words, like a new vocabulary to articulate identity as something more than a reductive label, not just for how we can reference ourselves and our place in the world, but how we label others and the consequences of that. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, the the only way through that is through empathy and, and imagining ourselves in, you know, every one of us has a responsibility as a human being to imagine the experiences of other people. Do you think a lot about empathy as a writer? I do. I mean, I think it's I think it's my job as a writer to really try to understand what it is like to be my characters. You know, I think empathy is a really tricky thing and in my life I fail at it all the time. <laughs> but I, I it is the job of a writer and of a reader. I mean, when a person sits down to read fiction, that's what's being asked of them, is, is to empathize, to, to enter the story. And I think that is that can be such a challenge, but it's also such an exhilarating thing to be able to experience other lives. When you start crafting your stories, do you have this empathy on your mind in terms of how you build character and plot? Or is that something that you just hope comes through either through revision or just in your sensibility before you even begin? I think it depends on the story. I mean, we get to know our characters, you know, the way, as both readers and writers, the way we get to know people in our lives by spending time with them, by seeing them, how they behave when their backs are up against a wall, by watching them interact with the people in their lives, often under stressful situations. But I certainly I'm interested in exploring characters in situations where there's something I don't understand. I'm I'm constantly writing into mystery and writing into the limits of my understanding, trying to understand more. And certainly some of my characters started, I, uh, Amadeo in um, The Five Wounds, which is the second story in my collection, was a character who was really tricky for me to understand. He was a character who I was not inclined to feel sympathy for. He's an alcoholic. He's a deadbeat father. He is selfish. He's had a history of domestic violence. You know, he's not a character who I especially wanted to align myself with. And so that, for me, the project of that story was to come to understand him. And not just to understand him, but to feel what he would feel. And so that it was really challenging for me to make this person who, on, on some level, I, when I started writing, had already dismissed. And what did you find redeeming about him? I mean, for you, what kept you going or what slice of him kept you interested in him or helped you cross that boundary? You know, it was his longing. It was his longing to be better that I really empathized with. And, and, and also, you know, his growing self-awareness 
I, I tend to like characters who are fairly self-aware and who think about their lives and their relationships with the other characters in their stories. So it, it, it was his longing. It was the fact that he understood that he was limited and was trying with every cell of his being to to transcend that. And, you know, he was getting it wrong. The the paths that he picked to transcend that weren't weren't panning out for him. And so but I do think it was you know, that that struggle and longing that I found so interesting and is and that's what made me able to empathize with him. And but it was tricky in the beginning. I remember, you know, on some level being angry <laughs> with him, which is, you know, a, a funny reaction to have towards somebody I I imagined, you know, he doesn't exist. <laughs> he came out of my brain, but I I was really angry with him and so it it took many drafts um and you know, I I would have to in each draft go deeper and deeper and deeper to to understand him better. I noticed with a lot of your endings that your stories end with kind of a moment in the present, maybe even a physical moment where the character is is seeing something around them or feeling something around them. And I'm wondering about endings for you, if you're striving for something, if they're hard for you to write. And then if if you have you feel like you have a responsibility for the to the reader to feel like they can keep imagining where the story goes from there. You know, I find endings difficult and they come to me in various ways. Sometimes I will have an image that I really like and want to end on that, or I have a sense of the emotional arc that I want my characters to go through. That that happens more frequently, that I'll understand, okay, this, this character starts off feeling like he's in control of his life, and then the emotional arc is that he will understand um, the limitations of that control. And often I... I won't exactly know how to get there. And that's what revision is for me, you know, trying out various endings, trying out various ways of getting my character through that change, figuring out how to align the events of the story so that that change makes sense. So in the case of, say, Ordinary Sins, which is a story set in a parish office, in that case, I I really, really struggled with the story. When I started the story, it started as a murder mystery. The priest was going to die midway through the story. Um, and as I wrote my way toward that ending, I, you know, I had a full draft. I gave it to my workshop at Stanford. And people just said, this isn't working. It's not working at all. And so I got to the, even though I started with the whole idea of this priest being murdered, I had to go to the point right where he gets murdered and cut all of that away and toss it and figure out actually what story I'd been trying to write. So endings are tricky for me, and, and I often I often throw out several endings. I feel like the place where you stop your stories are open-ended, meaning your characters don't die. And in a way, when your characters don't die, it allows the reader to think about them more, to wonder what choices they make in their life and how they're going on or what mistakes they might continue to make or what lessons they might learn. So in a way, they live on for the reader. And I just wondered if you could comment on that. As a reader, what, you know, when I read a story, those are the endings that I find most satisfying, where I have enough enough information to 
get a sense of what will happen, but that there is enough opening that I can continue to to see these characters and imagine that future beyond the end of the story. Um, so that is what I'm, I'm, I hope for. You know, I would feel that I had not succeeded if the story shut down completely at the end or if a reader was just baffled, <laughs> wondering, is this a happy ending, a sad ending? I have no idea. <laughs> that, that, to me, would be a failure on my part. So you just mentioned Ordinary Sins, which takes place in a rectory. There are three primary characters, Father Paul, an older priest who admits to the community that he struggled with alcohol, but that's in the past, Father Leon, a younger, perhaps more by-the-book priest from Nigeria who's new, and Crystal, who is a young, pregnant, unmarried woman who works in the office. And one day, Crystal is looking for Father Paul, and she finds him with suitcases of empty vodka bottles. And he asks her to get rid of them and claims Father Leon planted them there because he, he thinks maybe he wants Father Paul's job. As the story moves forward, it's about what Crystal and Father Paul need from each other, particularly because she's confessed her sexual history to him, and he is perhaps caught red-handed. So they've both been compromised in front of each other. Tell me about the impetus for this story. When I first thought of this story, when I, when I first sat down to write it, Father Paul was going to end up murdered on page seven. <laughs> and, and, you know, he was going to be out of the story for, for the rest for the rest of the story. And so in writing that original story, I was, you know, trying to think about whose point of view will it be from? It can't be from Father Paul's because he's going to be dead on page seven. So I settled on this young woman in who works in the parish office who has, she also cleans the rectory. So she has some knowledge of his life and knows him intimately, but also doesn't. There's still that distance because she is also a parishioner, and, you know, she's a young woman. She's, so there is this vast difference between her and Father Paul, this distance between them. I think what interested me about, you know, by the time I finally figured out that the murder wasn't going to work and that Father Paul, that that wasn't actually the story that I'd, I'd written, that the story I'd written was actually this more complicated story about their relationship and, as you said, you know, what they need from each other. I think what interested me about this location of the parish office is that it is both a place where the most important things happen, marriages, funerals, you know, these major rites that, you know, make up a, a human life, you know, that get sorted out in a parish office. Also, you know, people despair. People go to their priests with these really, really difficult problems and secrets. And yet it's also just a workplace. It's an office where you know, there's office politics and people show up late and people get annoyed with each other. And I really liked the tension between those two things. The priesthood has always been really interesting to me. I, I've always been really interested in people who can give their lives and themselves so wholly to their faith. It's not something I entirely understand myself, but I, I do find it really, really interesting. And it also just seems like such a lonely career choice to be on this pedestal, as you said, and to be in a position of offering comfort and and advice and to be, you know, the, the channel for <laughs> divinity. It just seems like it could be very, very lonely. So that was another thing that I was interested in exploring as, you know, what what would it be like on a day-to-day basis for this man 
who doesn't have close friends. You know, the, the one other priest, he, he doesn't quite understand. And he doesn't feel that that man understands him. You know, I am really curious about this relationship between the fathers. So Father Paul is this older man who's been with the church for a really long time, and yet he's very open. He admits his his sins, that he was an alcoholic. And then there's this new guy, Father Leon, who comes from Nigeria. And Father Paul is convinced that the powers that be are working towards replacing him, that Father Leon isn't there just to learn from him, but ultimately to take over his job, which, I mean, yeah. you, you can see that in corporate America as well. And so there's this tension between them. I really want to talk a little bit about that explanation for the bottles. Tell me how you came up with that, if what you want the reader to take away from that. There's kind of a, a magical almost like a witchery element to the possibility of why the bottles are there? I don't think that Father that Father Leon has anything to do with it. I mean, I, I think Father Paul is delusional that he's fallen off the wagon and um, is paranoid and probably, you know, has channeled his guilt and anxiety over having fallen um onto Father Leon. He's new to the parish. He's he's a stranger. Um, he's an other in this world. I suspect that there's some racism there. There's, you know, there are a lot of reasons that Father Paul has subconsciously settled on Father Leon as, as the reason for his fall. You know, I do think there there are some cultural differences there. Father Paul is post-Vatican II. You know, he really talks about primacy of conscience, and it is a more sort of liberal, his is a more liberal theology, I think. And Father Leon is a very young man and brings with him a much more conservative approach to, to the job. And, I, you know, for that reason, he really is an outsider in this parish. People have been used to Father Paul's take on things. And, you know, and, and Father Leon, I believe, firmly in in what he's been preaching, but it's isolated him. I was I was interested in Father Paul getting this wrong. I think it's very confusing to Crystal, who, you know, has been raised from childhood to revere her priest and to trust her priest. So it's an upsetting moment for her, you know, when he he is telling this telling her this giving her this account of events that she just doesn't, it doesn't even make sense to her. It is a, a byproduct of his illness. I, and I think that delusion shakes her even more, her, her faith even more, but also makes her think about her faith. I don't think Crystal is somebody who, until this moment, has thought very much about what she believes. I think she's taken a lot of, you know, the Catholicism of her, her upbringing for granted and found a way of living within it and around it. And so in this moment, I think she's actually forced to think about what she believes and what she thinks the role of the priest is. And when he asks her for help, I think that's the moment where she is both really taken aback because that's not how things should work. You know, there's <laughs> help and, and comfort flow in one direction, you know, in the hierarchy of the church, along with other things, with authority and, you know, all, all of that and punishment and all of those other things. But he is asking her for comfort. And I think in that moment, everything turns upside down for her. 
and she's forced to think about whether she is a person who can offer comfort, even to this man who she doesn't especially like, who she resents, and who is using her confessions, you know, lording her confessions over her in a really unethical way. I guess I have to ask this question about thematically if there's a parallel between this priest asking his parishioner to believe something that nobody saw with their eyes in the same way people are asking their parishioners to believe that Jesus performed these miracles or that he rose from the dead. Did you think about that at all? I didn't think about that, but that is such a good question. Um, And you're right. I mean, that that parallel is there. And, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about Flannery O'Connor's misfit, you know, who in in A Good Man is Hard to Find says, I wasn't there, so how can I believe it? Yeah, you're right that that's absolutely there, that question. Let's talk about some of your literary influences. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? So I thought I would read just the opening paragraphs of um, one of Alice Munro's story, Dimensions. Dory had to take three buses, one to Kincardine, where she waited for the one to London, where she waited again for the city bus out to the facility. She started the trip on a Sunday at nine in the morning. Because of the waiting times between buses, it took her till about two in the afternoon to travel the hundred-odd miles. All that sitting, either on the buses or in the depots, was not a thing she should have minded. Her daily work was not of the sitting-down kind. She was a chambermaid at the Blue Spruce Inn, She scrubbed bathrooms and stripped and made beds and vacuumed rugs and wiped mirrors. She liked the work. It occupied her thoughts to a certain extent and tired her out so that she could sleep at night. She was seldom faced with a really bad mess, so some of the women she worked with could tell stories to make your hair curl. These women were older than she was, and they all thought she should try to work her way up. They told her she should get trained for a job behind the desk while she was still young and decent-looking. But she was content to do what she did. She didn't want to have to talk to people. None of the people she worked with knew what had happened. Or if they did, they didn't let on. Her picture had been in the paper. They'd used the picture he took of her and the three kids, the new baby, Dimitri, in her arms, and Barbara Ann and Sasha on either side looking on. Her hair had been long and wavy and brown then, natural in curl and color, as he liked it and her face was bashful and soft, a reflection less of the way she was than of the way he wanted to see her. And, I mean, I just, I love Alice Munro in general, and what I love about that opening is how carefully Munro builds tension. Um, You know, we start with Dory in motion. She's on a series of buses heading to the facility, Um, and that word is dropped so lightly into the text, yet it sounds so sinister. Um, I think in that deliberate focus on the mundane details of the bus routes and times, we really sense that something is off. And what I love about Alice Munro is that she takes her time. And I think that's the thing I've learned most from Munro is the importance of looking closely. And the closer you look, the more complicated and interesting the situation is. And she's constantly peeling back layers. And I also love that 
Monroe's subject matter can be really sensational. You know, she's not afraid to tackle ESP or, you know, mistaken identity or, you know, as in this story, Dimension, a triple murder. But her treatment of it is never sensational. She's always deeply curious about her characters and takes her time and looks so closely. I just adore her. Can you read a passage that you wrote? It could be something that you felt like was really difficult to get to the final result or something you're pleased with, something you rewrote a lot. Sure. I'll, I'll read just the first two paragraphs of Ordinary Sin. Last night, Crystal dreamed she was sitting naked on the corduroy rectory couch next to Father Paul, who was snipping at her fingers with orange-handled scissors. In the dream, she was holding a prayer card on which was printed, in place of a saint, a spill from her sonogram. She felt stinging cuts on her knuckles and in the webbing between her fingers, saw the warm blood running down her wrists and beating on the laminated surface of the card, but she neither cried for help nor tried to get away. She was pinned to the couch by her pregnant belly. If the dream hadn't been so unsettling, it might have been almost comical, Crystal thought now, Monday morning, as she updated the calendar of events for Our Lady of Seven Sorrows. Father Paul, so benign and solicitous and eager for approval in waking life, starring as the villain in her dream. She glanced down at her fingers, typing, intact. If she were to tell Father Paul about her dream, so she wouldn't tell him anything about her life ever again. He'd be concerned and apologetic, as if it weren't Crystal's own warped brain that had cast him in the scene. Even the thought of his concern irritated her. Any minute, Father Paul would walk into the office, and when he did, she'd smile as if everything were just fine, as if their conversation on Friday had never happened. And like I said, that story was really challenging for me to write, but I wrote a whole version of it before I realized that I had been on the wrong track and had to had to throw away half of it. And that opening, actually, I, I'll sometimes give myself challenges based on um, stories that I read and admire. And I had just read um, a couple years earlier um, Al- Antonia Nelson's story, Soldier's Joy, and she opened with a dream. And I remember thinking that was such a bold and risky move and that, you know, to open a story with a dream just seemed really crazy to me. And she pulled it off. And so I set myself that challenge to start a story with a dream. Where do you write? I usually write at a desk, um, either my own or at a library. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? (laughs) Um, If I'm running away from writing and avoiding it, um, often I clean. Um, If I'm just getting getting away from, you know, being in my brain. I, I love to take hikes and be outside. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a handful of friends, other fiction writers with whom I exchange work and whose notes I just trust completely. And how do you deal with rejection? Rejection's tricky. Um, I, I think I always sort of more or less expect rejection so that when when something good happens, then I'm really happy and it feels like a nice surprise. But, <laughs> you know, I, I feel sad, but then I move on pretty quickly. I, I think it's just part of, the, part of the job. And what is your favorite word? Probably melancholy. I remember encountering it in a book when I was a kid and being enchanted by it. And I went around for a few weeks 
um, feeling melancholy, which is how I thought it was pronounced. And so I like swanned around being melancholy until um, I think I said it out loud and my mother corrected me. Um, but I love that word. It's so romantic and evocative um, and often pops up in the Victorian novels that I really love. <laughs> You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest was Kirsten Valdez Quaid, author of the short story collection, Night at the Fiestas. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.